Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. On this week's Truth and Movies, it's a kind of magic, but don't stop me now as we're under pressure and I want to break free. The Troubled Bohemian Rhapsody is our first review, and yes, I am embarrassed by that introduction. Can you go a bit higher? If I go any higher, only dogs will hear me. Garth Marenghi's Matt Holness makes his feature debut with the jet black Possum. Little Possum, black as sin. And the most film club film ever is in the film club. That's Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. Ash, help me. Let me out of here. I'm, I'm all right now. It's Truth in Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So we should say hello and introduce ourselves. I am Nick Donkoff. I'm sitting in again this week. And we should say hello to someone who is absolutely not unfamiliar to the seat that she's in. In fact, have you even left this studio for the last couple of months? I don't know. It's uh, hello to Hannah Woodhead. Hi, I live here now. This is my home. It looks like you've pretty much welded to that seat. And also hello to Ella Kemp. Hello, thank you very much for having me. That is Kemp. K-E-M-P. Please don't say it's Ella Camp, otherwise all hell will break <laughs> loose. Uh, so we've got some good stuff to do this week. We've got horror, we've got grim stuff, and we haven't even got to Bohemian Rhapsody yet. I already know sort of what Hannah thinks because uh, her print journalism is available. Um, but listen to what she has to say first. That's what I'd say. If you haven't read her review yet, <laughs> listen to what she's got to say now, and then you can pick up on the inconsistencies later. But before we get to all that, we should uh, we should read out some of the correspondence I said on last week show when we're talking about Halloween and the famous rubber William Shatner mask I said uh, I posed the question what's the best rubber mask wearing movie or what are the best rubber mask wearing moments in the movies and uh, my personal suggestion was Point Break the dead president's in Point Break because I love those rubber masks and I think I said at the time there's a whole podcast in this and indeed the correspondence did come in Hannah have you got one? I have yeah Ben from Devon uh, wrote in to give a little shout out to uh, Mr. Baffleck. Ben Affleck's half decent directorial outing the town saw the bank robbers wearing dreadlocked skull masks and scary nun masks, which were pretty impactful. On a related note, if the rumours of Batfleck hanging up his cape are true, then wouldn't it be Keanu's turn? Keanu's turn? Keanu of Point Break fame. We're, and we were only just talking about Keanu off air <laughs> because I'm a huge fan of Keanu, but I, I don't know, Batman? I can't, I, I can't see it. Maybe it's like a, a kind of old, like, retired Batman. Yeah. And I love him, but... They wanted to do that with Clint Eastwood, didn't they, about ten years ago. Now, that, that might have been, is like, proper a... old Batman. Is there a film out there that at some point Clint Eastwood hasn't been attached to? 
No, no. I heard they wanted him for Freddie Mercury. I think he was going to do Freddie Mercury, but he was not happy with the prosthetic <laughs> teeth. Uh, we've got another one, um, which is uh, brilliantly just links in with what we're doing this week as well. On the topic of best rubber face masks in movies, a shout out to Darkman by the director of this week's film club, Sam Raimi. This is from Alexis, I should say. A bizarre comic book style film from back when a di- writer-director could invent their own superhero rather than just raid the DC Marvel back catalogue. Worth watching just to see Liam Neeson in the title role. The most Nicolas Cage performance by somebody other than Nicolas Cage that you're ever likely to see. It is great. It's a great movie, Dark Man, and it's just completely forgotten. It's one of those movies that people just sort of some survive and some don't, and it's not always what's good and what's bad. So, Dark Man, yeah, I, I like think... that. Uh, the most Nicholas Cage performance by someone who isn't Nicholas Cage. That's another question to throw out. It is just on Nicholas Cage, not rubber masks, but face off. Yeah, Nicholas Cage and John Travolta. Actually. There's some kind of mask work in there <laughs> worth talking about. That's a bit like when you were talking about Mission Impossible last week, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's yeah. my favourite mask you, you, you feel like they're wearing masks. They're not wearing masks. Although John Travolta, since face-off, has looked more often like he's wearing a mask than he actually he did at the like time. He, he looks like he's wearing a cheap dollar store like mask of himself. He's uh, doing his best. He's, is he's, he? Is he? He's trying. I don't know. I've seen some of his best, and I'm not sure that he is doing his best anymore. Um, let's see what's going on with Bohemian Rhapsody, which is our first film on this week's podcast. So this is one of those movies, Bohemian Rhapsody, where it feels like there's more to say about the making of the film than there might be about the content of the film, at least partly because when you tell a story and it's a biopic and it's a musical biopic, we know a lot of the story already. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be about the way it's told. And fundamentally, the starting point for this musical biopic, and it can absolutely be a fork in the road for any film like this, is this is done with the band's blessing and that's probably quite important isn't it yeah i think that's kind of a red flag to me when you hear that someone is involved in a biopic who either the biopic is about them or they're very close to the subject in this case so the film was originally conceived god nearly 10 years ago now uh with mr sasha baron cohen attached to play freddie mercury and it was going to kind of be a you know just the freddie mercury story and he was sort of kicked out you you get the sense that it was not as uh, lovely as uh, Brian May wanted to portray it to the press and um, Sasha Baron Cohen has spoken I think on Howard Stern he kind of said like uh, oh well I wanted it to be you know warts and all and and the rest of Queen weren't happy about that well Um, didn't he say that Queen wanted the film to have Freddie's death in the middle and for it to be them going on to greater things after Freddie died because in their minds that's their narrative yeah. Um, Not I mean, luckily, that isn't actually what happens in the film. It is very much like the Freddie Mercury story. Oh, and there are some other guys that were in Queen. Where do we begin? Does it start with them we meeting start, at college? We start... I should um, say I haven't seen it. This is absolute ignorance. I'm not yeah. feigning ignorance. It's genuine ignorance. Ella and I had a lovely night out. We went to the world premiere. Um, at Wembley. At Wembley. Did you? At Wembley. Did you go to the SSE Arena? The SSE Arena. We did. Wow, in um, the concrete. And there's a Wembley-like joke in the film that they make quite late mm-hmm. on. Because yeah. uh, the film actually kicks off. The first scene we see is Freddie Mercury getting up on the morning of the iconic Live 8 performance, voted the best rock performance in history mm. by the BBC listeners. Um and he gets up and he puts, you know, he, he gets dressed. I think they're playing uh, Somebody to Love. Yeah. And then it cuts flashback to 1970, where a young Freddie meets Brian and uh, Rog at college. That's a lot of hair in that scene, I'm so guessing. So much hair. So much hair. 
<laughs> but somehow less hair than there ends up being later in the film. It just grows and grows, and they make this very tiny joke about it. Like, I was born with this hair. And what, like, Brian well, May? Yeah, Brian May is like, I was born with this hair. And I think, well, Brian... Judging on 20 minutes ago, y- you weren't. You weren't. <laughs> this is not true. That's one of many, many inconsistencies it, in this film. Is he not as curly from the beginning? It's the beginning, he just slightly less. He yeah. doesn't have the perm. The first time we see him, he's playing in uh, this band, uh, they were called Smile. Mm. And, uh, Smile? Smile. Mm-hmm. Oh, OK. And he's playing with um, Roger and... I'm referring to them like I know them now. Yeah, Brian and Roger. <laughs> Brian and Roger. Uh, and they're playing in this band and Freddie's watching them. And yeah, they, they look kind of the same but different, you know. And then next time we see Brian, he's got a, he's got a full-on serious poem Which is more relaxed the first time around. He's, you know, kind of this young guy experimenting with his hair. And the next time, he's just committed to a perm. And you think, oh, OK, you've really gone for it with this one. And, and he did and he did, and continues to commit to that, uh, to that hairstyle. Yeah, he does. Um, so this is a film that uh, nominally is directed by Brian Singer, but it's one of those weird situations. I remember us talking about this last week before the film came out, when we're talking about this off-air, which is that sometimes films have a troubled backstory and there's been rumours that other people have been involved but, you know, they put up a front that that, you know, that everything was actually rosy. Now, technically, Brian Singer's name is still on here, but it feels like there is not a review out there that doesn't, right up front, say, Brian Singer didn't really finish this film mm-hmm. because he was rowing with Rami Malek, who plays uh, Freddie in the film, Freddie Mercury, and Dexter Fletcher was brought in Although also, I think Dexter Fletcher may have even been attached to the film himself at some stage. He was so supposed to be when Ben Whishaw was supposed to play Freddie Mercury. So in between Sasha Baron Cohen and Rami Malek, Ben Whishaw was, yeah. was going to play the lead and Dexter Fletcher was going to direct. And then I don't know why Dexter Fletcher didn't end up doing it, but he know. didn't do it. Then Brian Singer did. Then he didn't. And yeah. then Dexter so Fletcher came to finish it. Apparently Dexter Fletcher came in two thirds of the way through mm. principal photography. So I'm not sure which two thirds. That's, That's a lot of film left. Yeah, so he had to do mm. one third of the film. Uh, the reason Brian Singer re- maintained the sole director credit is due to, a, to the Directors Guild of America. Yeah, right. like, there's some reason. I'm not entirely sure, and you'll have to forgive me, listeners, for not having my specifics down. But don't worry, fans of Dexter Fletcher, <laughs> because he will be back in May with Rocketman, the Elton Dude, John biopic. John. Yeah. Famously a true fantasy, according to the tagline. Well, this is, you know, this is going to run into similar problems that Bohemian Rhapsody has run into, which is that, you know, there's a story behind Bohemian Rhapsody, and God knows there will be with Elton John as mm-hmm. well, of, of excess mm-hmm. that would necessarily mean a movie that's likely to have a higher age rating, that's going to be grittier, mm-hmm. that's going to be tougher. Maybe they're not going to do that with Elton John because, again, it's made by, I'm assuming, Elton and David's production company. I was going to ask you, is there any evidence of Brian Singer or Dexter Fletcher in there? Because it feels very much like a Queen production from the outside. Yeah, I mean, they've really gone for the kind of uh, 12A, PG-13, mm. like, family-friendly story of Queen. Take and your kids to go and see Bohemian Rhapsody. They'll be fine. You know, and, and it's very much like, shut up and play the hits. They're all there. When right. we were at Wembley, people were loving it. People were singing along, they were clapping, they were foot-stopping. But you don't need to be a sort of Queen expert to know that Freddie Mercury had more to him yes. than being an incredibly talented musician, you know. He had a really hard life. And um, the film kind of glosses over all the things that, are interesting about him as a person and as an individual in this kind of relentless... It, does, it deals with him coming out, doesn't it? Yeah, sort of, yeah. He it kind of shows yeah. glimpses of everything, but always to a very catchy yes. soundtrack. Right. So if everyone yeah. was clapping along at the screening that we were at... It was almost the sound of the claps and people enjoying the music just drowns out and softens what you're seeing, which isn't that easy and shouldn't be as enjoyable as it is. It kind of gets away with showing things, but without actually dealing with 
you know how painful or difficult they were. I guess the payoff that, that that happens with these kind of films is if you want to use the music, you have to get the permission of the people yeah. who wrote yeah. the music. And so you get. I remember a couple of years ago there was that Jimi Hendrix biopic with Andre Three Thousand from Outcast yeah, by Jimi yeah. Hendrix, and it was absolutely terrible. And a big part of the reason that it was absolutely terrible was there was no Jimi Hendrix music yeah. in it. Yeah. At all, because I hadn't got permission. So what you have to have <laughs> is you have to have a an incredibly egoless person who says to you, "You can do what you like with this." So uh, I'm thinking maybe Tina Turner with "What's Love Got to Do with It." You know, that's yeah. a pretty gritty mm. depiction of her life, but she wanted it out there. Well, Freddie might have done that if he'd been alive. He might have said, "I want you to tell my story." But unfortunately, there's been a lot of sort of airbrushing since his death. Mm. There's been a lot of very curious articles, especially in the past week with this film coming out, that are saying, well, Freddie was a very private man. You know, he wouldn't have wanted it to be about his sexuality. And you kind of think, well, you know, he died in 1991. And then it was still kind of not okay to Mm. be gay. So had he been alive now, had he not died as early and as young as he did, then, yeah, I think it probably would have been a completely different story. And I think you can't sit and speculate on what he would have wanted as a person. I just think the whole film was kind of doomed from the start and it leaves a really sour taste in your mouth because you're constantly thinking there's more to this as mm. we see him uh, freddie sort of at home with his parents and um his family are parsi indians and muslim and there's kind of these little hints that his parents were very conflicted about him wanting to be a musician and later him being gay there's so many stories yeah. here aren't there and there are so many fascinating stories and really important stories that need to be told and you just don't get them. It feels like they're so keen to portray him as just this very, like, effervescent musician mm. who was kind of, like, didn't have any autonomy of his own. He was just, like, swayed by the bad influences in his life. And the rest of Queen are, like, this sort of pure angels going, oh, Freddie, no. And it's like, mm. well, you know, I, I just don't quite believe it was always sort of rosy as this film seems very keen to portray it. We should talk, considering it's a film that's essentially about... I mean, one of the things we're saying is it's not really enough of a biopic of this one person, this incredible character, Freddie Mercury, because one of the interesting things about Queen has always been that it had this incredibly flamboyant front man and these boring guys behind, and they ended up making a <laughs> film that's got the best thing of the boring guys behind it's him. It's as much about them as about him. Yeah, which there's is... so much of the music, which yeah. is great. So there's so much to enjoy all the time. And every time, I found that every time I'd get a little bit distracted, then another song would come in. And I right. think, oh, well, I like this song, so this is nice. <laughs> I'm having a good time. But then it was... Once the film finished, you know, I wasn't surrounded by 7,000 people clapping along. You just think about it and you think, I wish there was more. And Bohemian Rhapsody came on the radio the the other day and I was just really upset. I was like, wait, but I should have a better visual memory of this song than I've got in the past week. I'm glad you talked about Bohemian Rhapsody because we've got a little clip here that we're going to throw in. And then after we've played this clip, I'm going to ask you about the performances in this movie. that? Higher. Can you go a bit higher? If I go any higher, only dogs will hear me. Try. Galileo! Galileo Figaro! Higher. Jesus, how many more Galileos do you want? One more, one more. One more. Go on, roll the track. Who even is Galileo? Are we done? That's it. He loves you. So that's Queen recording Bohemian Rhapsody. 
with Freddie Mercury. This kind of movie is also going to stand or fall on the performances. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? If you look down the cast list, there's not one big name in there. You know, normally with How this kind of... How dare you besmirch the name of Mike Myers? Yeah. Oh, I'd forgotten... <laughs> do you know what? You see, I'd for... Because I haven't actually seen the film, I'd forgotten that Mike, Mike, Mike Myers is also going to crop up every week. It was Michael Myers, Mike Myers really? um, But, you know, this is not the film that they've, they've thrown to big names because no. if you want to be cynical about it, I really like Rami Malek and I think he's a really fantastic performer. I remember seeing him in Short Term 12 with Brie Larson a few years ago and thinking, this guy's really, really got something. So when they announced his casting, I thought, that's great. But part of the reason it's great is because he's he's not a big name. But also, the, the flip side of that coin is they've been a bit cheap on the casting. They haven't thrown money at the casting at all. But how is Rami Malek in this movie? Oh. I think he's great. He's he really is. good. I, I haven't seen him in Mr. Robot, but whenever I've seen him crop up in smaller things, he's the kind of actor that I think mm. there is so much potential here and I'd love to see him really dig into a meteor role, which he he's absolutely got. gets here. And I think he does a good job, as you can do, trying to be Freddie Mercury, who is... Like, no one can be Freddie Mercury because Freddie Mercury was Freddie Mercury. I think he's fantastic. And I do actually think that the other band members, they're not that bad, just in terms of the actors and their performances. They're perfectly nice. And, you know, and it really fits in with the whole family-friendly feeling that they're going for because, you know, they're they're very likeable, arguably more so than they might have been in real life. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Rami Malek kind of, like, pursued this project and he Mm. said, you know, to the production company listen, you know, I'm a half Egyptian, I kind of grew up a Christian minority, I, I feel very close to Freddie Mercury as a, as a person and I would love to tell his story. And you get that passion definitely watching him, you can tell that he really cares about this film. Mm. And in the big performance moment at Live 8, I think he's absolutely incredible, you know, he's, he's absolutely magnetic to watch. But then there were so many distracting things about this. I mentioned Mike Myers, for some reason he's cast as um, Ray Foster, who was the man who turned down Queen. And um, he does a northern accent and he has a moustache oh. and he makes a Wayne's World joke and it's this is these I'm are sorry, the thing uh, he on makes a, a Wayne's World joke and it's the most jarring thing I've seen in cinema this year and wow. I, I watched Venom and this was somehow worse but this is the thing there were so many kind of like weird flourishes like and just weird moments in the film that take you out of it and any mm. hope you have of emotionally connecting with the story and the characters is brushed off by the fact you're going oh my god that CGI crowd is awful it's or so oh my distracting. god during Bohemian when they're hoarding Bohemian Rhapsody there were all these like quick jumps and mm. it, and it, I guess it's meant to mirror the kind of energy of the song but it's just like you just feel a bit dizzy and it's sick. It's the same with Live Aid at the end like Rami Malek's performance is so good and obviously it's Does an amazing sing? show mm. well, so he sings but famously they've said that the singing is a mix between Freddie Mercury's voice, Rami Malek's voice and a blend of other voices I've heard. He's, yeah. Rami Malek's been quite kind of elusive about yeah, about it, it yeah. and just tried to it stay distant. Sa- it, it sounds like Freddie Mercury. It just sounds like Freddie. Yeah. There's more gin than tonic. Yeah. I mean, mix. if you Absolutely. think about the trailer for Rocket Man and when you hear Tyrone Egerton <laughs> singing... You know that is not Elton John. <laughs> singing <Yeah>. Rocket Man. <laughs> Sorry, it's so bad. Um, <laughs> whereas this, I think it's kind of a smart choice. Because yeah. like, like we keep saying, no one can be Freddie Mercury. Of course. Yeah. And... It's good and I that think, they well, didn't, Rami Malek you know, knows that. He knows that, and it was a smart choice to just include the songs. Mm. But at the same time, you're kind of like, this feels like 
inauthentic. It just doesn't feel like the real version of anything. And why would you take away from Live Aid with like the editing all the time? Yeah. It's just you have the, he's doing this amazing song which Freddie Mercury did very well. Rami Malek is doing very well, and for some reason the people making this film decide to keep cutting out to it to be like, oh, let's look at the audience in the pub, see how they're enjoying it. I'm like, <laughs> we know that everyone enjoyed it. We like it's a part of history. It's a fact that Live Aid was great. Just let us see that. I don't care about what this person in the crowd who is not making the music I don't care about what they're yeah. doing right now it's that weird moment where they're trying to connect it's so distracting they're trying, and annoying they're trying to say like oh my god look at the impact this had by like cutting to someone's face in the crowd it's really you know? and all we moments. need to see is a 10 minute one shot of Rami yeah. Malek singing because that is what is interesting about yeah, that scene absolutely and yeah I, I just there was a great movie here somewhere mm. I think maybe when someone said let's make a Freddie Mercury film and then they started making it and it just all went down I, I wonder if and it doesn't bear any comparison with that film by the sounds of it because it's obviously very very different but I wonder if they've they've seen you know you, with these kind of movies with any kind of movies these days you're either looking to make money like summer blockbusters or the other way you make money if you're spending a lot of money is you aim it at the award season market and then you have to put a bit of grit in there you know Rami Malek is not going to get by the sounds of it Oscar nominated for this role okay. but clearly a Freddie Mercury biopic that is how I would be looking at it is this is a movie where I want the lead to get Oscar nominated mm-hmm. and this is going to be that kind of movie it doesn't have to be out there you know Ray wasn't out there Walk the Line wasn't out there <laughs> yeah. but they were at least you know in that direction it feels like they've gone actually we need to make this more feel good yeah and it I th- feels very great as showman you know it's I mean that was last Christmas so yeah I think they maybe did look at the success of that film and see that it is all about the songs and the fact people would go to sing along screenings for like months on end because they they enjoyed the participation aspect same with that I keep calling it ABBA movie it's called Mamma Mia Um, (laughs) I called it ABBA movie to my friend they were like what and I was oh yeah there was two of them Hannah I'm sorry everyone but more than it being a kind of a true account of things that happened or or an explosion of this incredible person they've gone for the kind of like Right, let's just, you know, basically release a video version of the Greatest Hits album. And it's safe because the Greatest Hits are great. So people do enjoy listening to them. They know they're going to enjoy them going to see it. So people are going to keep buying tickets and have a lovely time. It may be that uh, to the frustration of people like us sitting around tables talking to microphones, this is a movie that is absolutely not for people like us. And it is actually for some kind of solid fan base of Mm, Queen who, you know what, didn't even know he was gay at the time, weren't interested in the fact that he was gay at the time, didn't care whether he was on coke at the time, interested in the backstory we're interested in clapping their hands along to we will rock you and that is the market that they've pitched this movie this at. Is the thing, and i've seen a lot of comments online saying oh well, the critics are going to hate it but fans are going to yeah. love it i i mean i always i think i said it on this podcast before last time we had a film like this critics are the biggest kind of fans you'll meet yes. you know we, we yeah. have made a living out of doing this we don't we like bad you know, films as we, well as good films we like, bad, <laughs> we like all the films and you know we do this because we love film mm. and we never I never go into cinema wanting a film to be bad absolutely and especially a film like this especially for British audiences you come out of the womb knowing Queen like you come out stomping your foot you know that you know the bass riffs you know you know everything about them kind of from the moment you're born so and I, you enjoy it like, and you enjoy it and I think it's disappointing because I care mm. and that's that's why I'm so kind of hard on it because I think in the hands of a different director I think this could have been a really yeah. sort of yeah. beautiful film and it's just not I love Queen and they deserve better. And so do fans. We all deserve better than what we've got. So I think that just about wraps it up for Bohemian Rhapsody. Apart from the scores, uh, this is always the point where Hannah desperately tries to remember what scores she's given it in (laughs) in print. So let's give her uh, a second to do that. Uh, So we'll start with you, Al. 
So I really wanted this to be good from the moment it was announced to the second I sat down. So anticipation was definitely a four. I enjoyed the songs. I enjoy clapping along and singing every now and then. So I'd give it a three. But honestly, it does not get better the more you think about it. And <laughs> I've had more nightmares about this film last week than the other two we're going to talk about. <laughs> so in retrospect, it's a two. Hannah? Yeah, I actually do remember what I gave this film because I was so upset to have to give it these scores. Um, anticipation was a two for me. I think Brian Singer is a terrible person and a, a shouldn't be allowed to make movies full stop. So, you know, hard two in anticipation. Enjoyment, a two. I think any enjoyment I would have got out of watching this was so dampened by the fact I was constantly thinking yes but like the whole way through the film and then in in retrospect two it pains me but it's a two and you may get your wish of brian singer never making a movie again we'll just have to wait and see won't we dark secrets and dark stories in bohemian rhapsody that just never quite come to the surface they will come to the surface in uh, matthew holness's (laughs) possum which we're talking about now mother father what's afoot only possum black as soot. Mother, father, where to tread? Far from possum and his head. Here's a bag, now what's inside? Does he seek or does he hide? Can you spy him deep within? Little possum, black as sin. So that gives you definitely a taste of the tone and the feel of Possum, which is the directorial debut of Matthew Holness. Uh, But this isn't some 19-year-old making uh, his uh, first piece of art. This is a guy who's been around for a long time. He was in the Cambridge Footlights. I think he may have been even uh, whoever the boss of the Cambridge... I can't remember what they say, editor, director, whatever. But he was in there with Richard Ioadi and uh, with David Mitchell. It was uh, a big year that year. Uh, He went on to make Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which was a huge cult hit. Uh, One of those things that didn't really do much on telly, but then had a new life on DVD. Uh, but he sort of disappeared into the background, and the comedy is not necessarily what comes to the fore in this new movie, Possum, for a film that, well, it's not always going to be easy to talk about the plot, but Hannah, could you give us a try? Yeah, I certainly can. So we have uh, Sean Harris, he of Mission Impossible fame, returning to his childhood home as a sort of disgraced puppeteer, children's entertainer, who um, goes back to his childhood home, which is this really horrible looking place and um, he has to confront his stepfather who is an equally sort of messed up children's entertainer Morris yeah and there are a lot of very creepy puppets and very disturbing like whisper voiceovers and gives me the shivers just thinking about this it's very much about tone as much as anything else, isn't it? The music has uh, been done by the Radiophonic, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. I couldn't quite get my head around... The Radiophonic Workshop did the music for, like, Doctor Who and things like that in the 70s. Very influential in the electronica scene. I don't think this can possibly be a new score that they've done because I don't think they really exist. Or is it? Is it a new score? Apparently it is. I'm getting a nod from behind <laughs> the glass. And th- these are the people who know about, uh, you know, the Radiophonic Workshop. And that throws a real... You know, you get these weird kind of bleached-out credits as well. It sets a stall out very early that what you're going to watch is not necessarily going to be it's not necessarily going to have a clarity to it it's going to be an opaque film and it's mm. going to make you feel things and perhaps through the course of the movie a story is going to emerge but it is really it's dominated by this central performance by Sean Harris and if there's one thing we know about Sean Harris is 
This isn't going to be some laughathon if Sean Harris is in the lead, is it? No, and the, the story is really opaque. But as you say, from the first, to the moment the credits come in, you think, oh, I know that the tone and the fear and discomfort that I'm feeling, that is not going to go away. Yeah. And it only increases more and more because, yeah, Sean Harris has to carry this whole film. And he does, and he just doesn't let go of you for the whole time. It's really just upsetting from start to finish really it is it's definitely a mood piece i think mm. i was surprised it's only 90 minutes but i mean they really kind of make the use of those 90 minutes mm. so you're on edge the whole time you're just waiting you're waiting for something to happen and i don't know if it ever does really maybe in the kind of the last sort of 10 minutes or so but it's not really about that it's mm. about this man who has experienced these kind of great traumas in his childhood and has hung on to them ever since and tried to kind of very literally throw them away. Um, But he can't. Everything keeps coming back to him. And I think it's... You have to wonder about uh, Matt Holness and if he's okay. It's a disturbing insight into somebody's psyche, isn't it? Um, it, I mean, the first 30 minutes, you are actually waiting for something quite specific, which is that Sean Harris's character, Philip, you know, you've seen him carrying this duffel bag around and you've even seen him stuffing something into the (laughs) duffel bag and getting it out of the duffel bag, but you never see what it is for the first 30 minutes. And you even have him having conversations with uh, his stepfather, Morris, about (laughs) what's in the bag. So you know it's a poppet. There's a history of of sort of dark puppet movies or ventriloquist movies. This isn't a ventriloquist puppet. Thank God it doesn't speak. But for the first 30 minutes, you're just thinking, am I going to see this? Do I want to see this? And you're scared enough without seeing it. You think, honestly, the atmosphere has built up in such a way that I'm already terrified. You don't need to show me a puppet as well. Because Matthew Holness does anyway. He does not care (laughs) what you want or don't want to see. It goes against that old movie maximum of, you know, the less you show, the scarier it is. Is that you 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 see it all. To start off with, you think, I'm not going to see this for the whole movie and it's going to freak me out. What it's In my imagination, it's going to be horrific. And then after 30 (laughs) minutes, you do see it. And it's worse than you you thought. Okay, that's scary. That's what I thought Um, and more than I ever could. I would love to know which children he was entertaining. (laughs) There is a bit where I think Morris said, He's retired. Yeah, he says it was the only thing you were ever good at, and you're thinking, was he? Was he good at it? I mean, what on earth was this? What on earth was this show that he was putting on with this puppet? The first thirty minutes are essentially about him trying to get rid of this puppet, Mm. and so you know he tries to burn it, he tries to bury it, he tries to uh, throw it in a river. Although it's barely a puddle, so that wasn't that. That bit's never going to work. But but it, it sort of keeps coming back, and what that sort of tells you as well is obviously we know already we're not dealing in a world of realism, but also it hints at the fact that a lot of this might actually be just. Something that's going on mm. inside Sean Harris's head. Is this puppet real? Is it some manifestation of some psyche? There's this freaky kind of subplot that goes underneath where the real world bleeds in, which is that in the opening scene of him on, of Sean Harris on a train with his puppet in a bag, he sees a group of teenagers and he, he tries to have a really awkward oh. conversation with one of these teenage boys. And the next thing you know, you hear that this boy has gone missing, that there's this missing teenager storyline going underneath. Is Philip responsible? Is the puppet responsible? <laughs> Is Morris responsible? And that becomes the sort of through line of what you're waiting to hear about. As we've said, there's no, there's no real great narrative drive. And if anything, actually, I almost didn't want a resolution at the end because yeah. it's not really about that, is it? It's not really about the story. And I think the way we're describing it with the puppets, it can make it seem really ridiculous and silly. But I think it's very well grounded. And because of the way it's shot and the, the sound design, which is just 
oh, it's so claustrophobic and really awful. Awful in a very well-accomplished way, which is just very stylish and sharp <laughs> and nasty. But I think because of that, it makes the atmosphere really convincing and compelling where it could have easily become this kind of cult and just ridiculous film. But it's very... It's very serious in how scary it is. On the subject of the sound design, I'm yeah, that's the thing for me that's kind of like has stayed with me. This kind of like the rustling and these mm. like these like droning sort of noises. It reminds me a lot of uh, the the masterful work of Mr. Peter Strickland of uh, Barbarian Sound Studio mm. and the forthcoming in Fabric, which I actually I saw that in Toronto and tweeted to say how good the sound design was. Mm. And Rook Films, who um, helped produce it, were like, oh, yeah, yeah, thank thank you. We're very proud of the sound design. <laughs> and it's the same with this. And I think it's a real argument for watching a film like this at the cinema because you, you do get that kind of, like, claustrophobia and mm. this real sense of whatever is going on in Philip's head is, like, manifesting in the world around him. Matt Holness had made a short. I mean, there's long gaps between all these things. Um, <laughs> but he made a short about five or six years ago called A Gun for George. And that was actually made by Warp Films, which is Ben Wheatley's company, isn't it? Mm. And, and I thought there was the source of almost these overtones of kill list. Certainly, it feels like, you know, there's a, a number of filmmakers who are working who have these influences that mm. seep through their work. And that kind of electronic music from the 70s, that kind of feeling of uh, the Wicker Man and uh, even kind of revenge movies from the 70s. I mean, to be honest, these people are actually living in quite a dark <laughs> place with these movies. But, you know... It, it seems patronising to say it's someone who's been around for a long time, but it is his first feature-length film. It is a calling card of talent here. What it also says to me, though, is this is someone who does not want to be necessarily associated with his past. His past is in comedy. There is not a less comic movie out... That's a terrible no. sentence, but there really is no lightning of mm. anything in this film at all, is there? No, God, no. I think I, I'm a massive um, uh, Dark Place fan, so I was really like quite pumped for this. And... Um, I think it's interesting what you're saying about the kind of this generation of like filmmakers. And um, for me, the thing that comes through is like the 70s children's television is so kind of yeah. loaded now for a lot of filmmakers. I mean, I, I imagine Matt Holness is kind of in his 40s. So yeah. he was probably of the Jimmy Savile era. He specifically mentioned that this is sort of a film that almost is about yeah, there's I nothing think, you would never read that into it unless oh, somebody wow. said it. But exactly, I think it's about this kind of like loss of innocence, mm. and you think about the kind of puppet shows. For me, like I grew up in the '90s, so I don't think of like Rainbow and those kind of like. Don't. You know, I don't. I, I, I don't, recommend it. You know, um, but you look at them now, and you're like, God, it, you can see why. Mm. The, the, you know, there's so many people who are very mm. haunted by the uh, the images that they've like clung yeah. to since childhood. I think it's a really fascinating. Um, First film. I mean, I really hope that Matt Holness gets to make another because this is amazing for a first feature. Let's hear a bit of Matt Holness talking because he can talk. I mean, he's actually also a really good uh, performer. It's almost a shame that he's not in this movie. <laughs> David Jenkins, uh, he's not my boss. I'm just, you know, a gun for hire here. But uh, is he everybody's boss here? I guess he sort of is. David Jenkins met with Matt Holness and they specifically had a chat about why he chose to uh, film Possum on film rather than digitally. I've always shot stuff on film, but... It's always been difficult to get to that point. Oddly enough, on Possum, we didn't have any problem at all. As soon as they said I wanted to you know, shoot it on film, they went, absolutely. And I couldn't believe it because that was the easiest. <laughs> that was the, I, I thought I was going to spend you know, weeks trying to justify it. Um, what would have been your justification? I think film captures a reality that digital doesn't, in that I think it feels dreamlike. It looks dreamlike. It, and it may be 
because I grew up on stuff that was film. That's how I suspend my disbelief and go in. If I see something in digital, it just looks like people making a film to me. I just cannot process it. It looks like actors. There's no subtlety. Everything's laid bare. That might be just my age and my upbringing in that I can't bear CGI effects on stuff. Unless they're to support more practical effects, I just can't see the reality. And it's interesting because my daughter, I was showing her some old Ray Harryhausen stuff. And I said to her, what do you prefer? Do you prefer these dinosaurs or do you prefer Andy's World of Dinosaurs or whatever the program is? And she went, oh, these ones. And I said, why? She goes, oh, these are real. And I think there is something in it that appeals to the childlike sense of dream or, or whatever. But on the practical terms, the argument is always that it's safer to shoot on digital because you can get more coverage, you just get more options. And I've always thought that's rubbish because it means people think less about what they're filming. Because actually with the greatest benefit from Dark Place onward was knowing that we only had two takes. And you know, we, we knew in Dark Place we had two takes to get everything because we couldn't shoot anything else because we couldn't afford the film otherwise. It's a shame because you don't get to practice as much as you need to practice. If you could be like you know the old Hollywood system and you could like make three or four films a year i think you'd find ways around you just learn how to you know do these things but they always want you to kind of uh, generally they don't want you to use film because you know they think people can't watch it or for some reason they need to see Isn't something, something crisp to do and... with like when they screen it on tv or the, yeah like, it was all that, that it, that's it, it, look, it looks weird it doesn't it, that the sort of transition from like that's digital it. to film is kind it's of... interesting because when i did the snipest for sky I wanted to use film and they said no, but they did concede on the public information film that the film starts with, which we did shoot on 16 millimeter and gives it the right grainy film uh, quality that, you know, gives it what it should be. It's supposed to be a 70s public information film. Well, it would only have been shot on film. Yeah. In that instance, like film is only allowed within a kind of institutional setting as pastiche rather than. That's it. Whereas like something like A Gun for George, I think it's really interesting because I think that film for me feels like about exactly what you're saying yeah. about the kind of dreamlike quality and there's a film. there's a particular moment in it where i think that you know was intentionally put in for that to, to kind of capture that at the end of the film when he's in the flat and he hears kids running down the corridor and then we shift the film stock to the far grainier film stock that that we've associated with the trailers that he's had in his head that the, the world of his 70s fantasy and suddenly you're flipped into that world and he's back in the 70s, he's back there, he's now the reprisalizer. And so it's, it was very important then. You could only have got that effect by using two different film stocks. You couldn't have done that if you were just shooting it digitally. So I think it's that, it, it takes you to a place, it, ta- it suspends your disbelief and you can manipulate that in any way you want. But it is something that takes you to a, a certain time and a certain place. And particularly with something like Possum, where it's very much about being in someone's personal nightmare and you're in their, you're in their head, it just is more dreamlike. It, it is somehow it just you believe the stuff that's coming out to haunt him, whereas actually if I think if you saw the Possum puppet shot on digital, you'd see too much of it and you'd, you know, you'd just think, oh, that's a puppet over there, rather than what's that thing that's, you know, it's, uh, that, for me, that's how it works. 
I guess. So the fact that he shot it on film is very much part of the overall aesthetic. I mean, actually, there's also, it's one of those movies where there's nothing to really indicate when it's set. You know, the mm-hmm. hairstyles and the people that are in it indicate that it's the present. But the train that they're on at the, at the beginning <laughs> is definitely a 1970s train. There's no mobile phones. There's no real technology anywhere in this in this bleak world. So using film almost seems to come naturally. And it's his use of that, along with the Electronica score, definitely gives it its feel, doesn't it? Mm. It's not cheap at all, and every image is very well designed, and a lot of it's very stark, and it has this haunting feel to it, as opposed to being something that's more in service of gore or more culty things like that, and just the grain of it. It's it's really quite beautiful in a way that's sad and really stays etched in your mind because of... Yeah, just how haunting it is. Well, I'm going to give you a a very precise indication of how much it's stayed in your mind by asking you for your scores in a second. (laughs) But we're going to start with Hannah's scores, please. Um, I think Anticipation is a a three, just because I didn't really know much about it. But, you know, Matt and uh, Sean, I think, uh, are names that kind of made me excited. Um, Maybe a maybe a three point five. I can't do that, but I'm going to do it for Anticipation. What's the point of stars if you cheat? Enjoyment. Yeah, I mean. I don't know. I think I was maybe too on edge to give it a four. Mm. (laughs) And then in retrospect, I like a high three. I feel like sometimes three, you know, people can be like, oh, that's like a a nothing score. But no, I mean, I think it's a really impressive debut. And I think Matt Holness is, you know, it it seems weird to be like, oh, yeah, he's got a promising future ahead. But if this is what he's going to do now and make films, I'm excited to see what comes next. Ella? I must be honest, I didn't know much about this film. I'm not the biggest expert on Matt Holness and the concept of a film that's so upsetting that you'll never forget it and will stay with you forever. <laughs> My anticipation was at a one. <laughs> I, was, I, I wasn't looking forward to watching this film. But it's really impressive and it's not cheap. And it, yeah, like so what fantastic for a debut. I didn't feel good while watching it, but I'm going to give it a three for enjoyment just in terms of respect. And in retrospect, probably a three as well. Not for reasons of positive feeling, but for feelings of, well done, you've scared me. <laughs> not cheap. That's my favourite compliment that anyone's paid a, f- a film this week. <laughs> not cheap. You say that there's no gore in Possum, that it's all about the tone and uh, you're not going to get anything up there on screen like that. So we really should move on to a film that definitely does do that. Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Ashley. Ashley, help me. Let me out of here. Ashley. Ash, help me. Let me out of here. I'm I'm all right now. I'm all right now, Ashley. I'm all right. Unlock this chain and let me out. So as I said in my intro right at the top of the programme, it's hard to imagine a more film club film than The Evil Dead. I'm almost surprised that it hasn't been done before. But hey, we're doing it now. Sam Raimi's 1981, I think it's fair to call it, a cult classic starring Bruce Campbell. It's also hard to imagine that this is a movie that at the beginning of people seeing it, they didn't know who Bruce Campbell was. And look where we are now. It's a long time since I've seen it because I am of a certain age where I didn't see it at the time, but it was very, very much on the radar when I was growing up because it was, uh, I think it was actually one of the original video nasties banned by the government in an age where those things (laughs) happened. Have you both seen it before? Anybody new to it? I was completely new to it. Okay, that's good. First time this week. That's good. So let's talk about the plot, such as it is. I'm going to deal with it because it's pretty quick. Five friends travel to a cabin in the woods where they unknowingly release flesh-possessing demons. You don't need to know much more than that, Hannah. It's it's so funny, isn't it? Because now I think anyone coming to this film for the first time would be like, well, that sounds really generic. But it's like, at the time, people were like, what the hell is this? This is the original Cabin in the Woods movie. That's what I was thinking when I was watching it. And I mean, I watched it for the first time when I was about 17 and then I rewatched it ahead of Film Club. And, uh, you know, it holds up. It's it's so remarkable to think that Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell, so they were high school friends who were like, hey, let's make a movie together. Mm. They um, they managed to rate, scrape together some funding and kind of went off into the woods to make this movie together. And <laughs> it has like kind of one of the most, like if you read the production history of this film and kind of like hear Raimi and Campbell talking about making this movie, it sounds like they had the worst time. But, you know, the thing that came out of it is this really quite remarkable feat of... Um, Raimi's like creative vision and Bruce Campbell's like performance you know mm. I said this on Twitter when I watched it he's my favourite final girl he's like this kind of very sweet all he wants to do is go to the cabin and propose to his girlfriend so, he looks so young he looks it? so young and so and handsome so tall and so covered in blood for most of it this film has obviously spawned a kind of like franchise with countless sequels we had a remake which I remember I yeah. worked at the cinema when that came out and I went to see it it's all right, the remake, I think. Yeah, I think the remake's pretty good. And at the end of it, we have a little cameo from uh, mm. Bruce Campbell. They were going to try and re- do a reboot and do more, but they've not. Well, it moved on to that. TV. Is, I think, I've yes. never seen it, but... Uh, yeah, there's like Ashes. Ash versus um, Evil yeah, Dead, I think, yeah. came out a few years ago and was a series. Yeah. And Ellie, you're squirming and pulling faces. <laughs> I mean, this was all news to me. Yeah. And yeah, as you say, Hannah, it does sound... Very generic on paper. And I was thinking, you know, it's fine. Halloween is next week. I'm going to do some prep. (laughs) And, I mean, like Possum, this film is only an hour and a half, but they fit so much in. It does kind of follow the format of, okay, now it's going to be quiet. Now this bit's going to make you jump. And Mm. then it does that kind of repeatedly. But it does it so well that each time I just think, how is this still happening? And how am I so terrified again? Because it's just so unforgiving. There's a lot of invention in there as well, isn't there? Yeah. and, And you just think... 
I don't know, it's a pretty simple concept and it could have played out in a certain mm. way to be effective, but they just keep on doing more and putting more out and like literally spilling more out, both metaphorically and literally, yeah. with <laughs> bodies everywhere. <laughs> oh, it's insane. It's a great line. They basically find a, a cassette player, a reel-to-reel cassette player <laughs> oh, in the basement. They start playing it and it's a doctor who's been doing some research on this thing, the Book of the Dead. The best bit of exposition in it for me is when he goes, uh, and the only way of stopping these demons is dismemberment. It's very like, specific. Okay, okay. okay. So that, that, <laughs> you know, that's it's like when somebody pulls a gun early in a movie. You, you, you know, that's going to come out later on. And and you know, <laughs> every time one of these demons is dispatched with, unless every limb has been severed, you're like, that's not the end of this one. You're you screaming. might have to deal with that. You're screaming at Ash, going, Ash, you need to dismember them. Do you not remember what the tape said? It's you very know? straightforward, but also. <laughs> Very, very surprising because you think you could have just told me that he needs to kill them. You could have just told mm. me that this good, good-looking man needs to save his friend. <laughs> Got that in again. What's true? <laughs> like the foreshadowing could have just said, "Look, he's good. They're bad. He's brave. They're scary. Mm. He needs to get rid of them." But dismembering—that's a very specific <laughs> word. And also, there's this great scene where his girlfriend has been kind of possessed, and he has to, and he's yeah. like, he knows, he knows, he's got to like get the chainsaw out, yeah. and you have this <laughs> this wonderful moment of him being like, "Oh, I don't want to do this. Mm. And I don't want to dismember her." That's why I I love Ash as a character. You do get that sort of real conflict within him mm. of like he doesn't just turn from this nice sweet guy into this kind of mm. like army of darkness like very so you know sensitive. he's very sensitive and very scared which is what I would be in that situation I wonder if the fact that he poured so much of his own you know life into that part gives him an investment in that character that in this kind of movie you wouldn't normally get yeah. maybe that if they'd got someone in because the rest of the performers in it are presumably just all their mates mm. and you know they're not people that I you know that I recognize anymore and they're not giving performances they don't need to to be fair uh, that, that resonate particularly with it especially since apparently once they're under prosthetics it's not them it's normally Sam Raimi or Bruce Campbell because they had so little money they just had to put the wigs on and protect themselves but Bruce Campbell rises above that he actually brings something to the character that isn't isn't necessary even, but but he, he he gives it that little bit extra. Um, he did not have to go that hard. Is what, is what the kids would say. You can tell that he really cares. And um, I was reading up about it afterwards. Like, there's so much trivia around this film and the whole production yeah. process. And they're talking about how obviously there was very little money, and it was such a difficult shoot. And mm. that Sam Raimi was like, well, the more the actors suffer, the more they'll be able to show genuine displays of agony and horror and everything cheers and, mate yeah. yeah and you've got Bruce Campbell talking about all these things saying how difficult it was but there is this footnote at the end that says he does want to say that he did have fun making this yeah, film right, as yeah. well it's a good job they were best mates I think yeah, that's what really absolutely. comes across and on the inventiveness like my favourite bit of this film comes right at the end when you know we've had the kind of climactic scene and this is again they ran out of money and couldn't afford fake blood so they used like plasticine to like do all the gory bits and did mm. stop motion animation which is so impressive and mm. so creative and not like anything else I have seen and I imagine to audiences at the time it was like what on earth am I watching yeah I wanted to ask you about the effects because obviously if you know and Ella, I suppose this is particularly true of you. If you're seeing this for the first time, the effects, they're so shonky. It's you know, by weird. today's standard. But actually, there's still, because now it's so easy to do those mm. effects, because you just bung it into a computer and it comes out and it looks real, the fact that it doesn't look real it's, gives it something, doesn't it? That handmade yeah. quality makes it sort of slightly freakier. Well, it's weird because, I mean, first of all, they do not look real. It does not look like <laughs> a lot of other films that we see nowadays. But it has its own quality to it because it's so different to anything I'd seen before. And just as all of this, you know, flesh spills out, it doesn't just look like 
flesh but not real mm. it just looks like this completely otherworldly substance altogether that you're like what am I looking at and how does it keep changing into this new thing which is just very specific to the evil dead and I don't think I'll ever forget it now. Stop, stop motion animation is sort of freaky in itself anyway yeah. so it's like a melding of two freaky things mm. we should talk about I mean this is Sam Raimi's first movie and of course he went on to have a hugely successful career but it, it, in some ways it feels like everything always comes back to this some directors go out and out and out and get bigger and bigger and bigger and yet for example if you're picking a Martin Scorsese film or if you're picking a film that was a, a Quentin Tarantino film you wouldn't necessarily pick their first one but with Sam Raimi this is the quintessential Sam Raimi film you know he brings so much style to the way that he's done it doesn't he mm, yeah I think if you watch this film and then watch kind of his big studio blockbusters you watch the Spider-Man films you get that same kind of wide-eyed like passion for movie making and that's the thing that I love about this film you can tell it was made by someone who just really really loves movies and wanted to make something that would blow people's minds mm. and I think there's a reason that people still cite it as such a kind of incredible horror film like 30 years after it was made I know when we threw this out to Twitter as well like we were expecting to get a lot of love for it but mm. we had a couple of comments as well that were kind of like didn't get the hype necessarily yes. uh, which I think it's nice to kind of shout out on people Absolutely. don't don't like it as much. Uh, David Bythe says... Uh, actually, David Bythe really likes it, but mm. still. Uh, David Bythe said, apart from one scene which is gratuitous and unnecessary, it's a top film. I guess he's talking about the tree scene. Yeah, I think he is. And I wanted to ask you about that because I do think that there is something about the sexual politics of movies from that time that, you know people will use the phrase, it, it was a different time. Because, you know, that scene in particular is a scene where effectively a woman gets all her clothes ripped off her by trees and vines and branches yeah. and sort of gets raped by a branch in a way that you watch it now and you just think, this has been put in there to shock yeah, at the time. it's really upsetting. It's still shocking. In fact, in some ways it might even be more shocking now mm. than it was then because, you know, it was a bit of a trope at the time and rape in particular was a bit of a trope at the time in horror films and in revenge films. But I think the way the, you know, the women are pretty, you know, there's, it did strike me in a way that it did not strike me in the 80s and 90s. There's a lot of glee in the way the female characters are dispatched within this movie. Yeah. More so than the men. They mm. they suffer. I mean, they're maybe, the first ones to go, and they go the hardest. Mm. Yeah, maybe I, be, I think Ash and Scott are kind of like these foppish sort of like, hey, just two charming guys with their girls in a cabin, like you know, and and the women are very much like, they can be quite shrill, mm. especially. I, I, is it? Shelley that's the first to go I can't I'm sorry it's terrible well, I don't no know but that. I think that's an indication that of the is, movie you don't yeah, always you know who's really, who you can't really tell them apart the fact as well like you were saying earlier about uh, it often being Bruce and Sam in Wicks yeah um yeah, there's like an interchangeableness to the female characters in this mm -hmm. film, which I think they tried to kind of wreck on this a bit in the remake because in the remake we get uh, Jane Levy as kind of the mm -hmm. central character mm -hmm. playing the Bruce Campbell role uh, yeah I don't know I think it would be interesting to me to see what a female director would yes. have done with mm -hmm. this concept. I think we're yet to get a kind of great woman doing a Cabin in the Woods movie. Mm. We've read David Bly's uh, comment. The hipster Lama also said, never really connected with them myself. I don't know, I'm not sure what he means by them. I don't know whether he means the effect. As a filmmaker, I respect the craft and ingenuity in the low-budget filmmaking, especially the stop-motion sequences, but I don't find it particularly funny or scary. And that one scene with the trees should never have been in there. I mean, the other thing is, it's the scene that sort of people always remember yeah. I think that's part of the reason it's there that is absolutely not a defence of it from me but that's <laughs> you know I think that's part of the logic behind it it's a shame because there is so much to remember and it's not as if this film is boring at any point like there's so many strong yeah. images that do you need a woman to be raped to remember it yeah is it still a scary movie 
I think so. I think that bit where um, they lock the, the, the demon, the demon, the I old guess, lady in the basement, mm. and um, you hear her like going, "We're gonna get you." Oh, it's like so creepy, and I think it's one of those times where you could like run it without the visuals, just do the sound, For and I would sure. still be freaked out. Yeah. Like. I think the sound design on this is, is, you know, as we did discuss with Possum and as with a lot of horror movies, is the kind it's of unsung hero. The sort of voices of the demons in the woods as well. Mm. And also, Sam, you know, that thing that has become an absolute cliche for Sam Raimi and for other directors as well, of that camera just zooming through the woods. Oh, you know, yeah. that's still a really, really effective thing. I still found that really quite freaky, just this idea that something is coming for you and it will not stop until it's got that, you. Talking about the woods and the kind of that sense of impending dread you get is something that I love that in films i love when you get a sense of a place just being haunted and i'd like to give a shout out to another great horror film i think people should check out which is it comes at night mm. which was uh, a recent film by trey edward schultz trey, trey edward schultz it's thank you it's, <laughs> it's it's his debut as well and it's a remarkable film it kind of is a cabin in the woods film it's about this family who uh, there's been a kind of mass incident and they've retreated to this cabin to escape it and there is something out there that is coming for them and it's terrifying and I think it kind of harkens back to this this very low budget way of making films and how terrifying and seeing a wide shot of some woods can be. Evil Dead, Sam Raimi's uh, 1981 <laughs> classic. Still scary, still freaky. I mean, and still the effects, maybe in a different way to them at the time, but still <laughs> will stay with you. Uh, I'm going to talk about next week's podcast in a sec, but first of all, I don't know who's come up with this question, but it is a great question. We've got a question to throw out for you. Last week it was all about rubber masks, and <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, keep them coming, because <laughs> I like a rubber mask chat. But our question for next week is, what is the worst movie with the best cast? Which is a brilliant question. I think we had this by email. I'm very sorry I don't have the name of the emailer to hand, uh, but it is a great question. And we've had so many... We asked this on Twitter and it started a massive argument between people that hate Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula and people that love Francis Francis Ford Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which, for me, the answer to this question is American Hustle by David O. Russell. Which I think is an interesting... American Hustle by David O. Russell. Never realised that rhymes. Um... Which had a great cast and I thought was an absolutely abominable movie. But yeah. I'm going to give a shout out for at a golden period of his filmmaking career for Robert Altman. Uh, he'd made The Player and then he'd made the amazing shortcuts and then he made this you know, terrible fashion film, Pret-a-Porter, which if you look at the <laughs> cast list, because he'd just made a couple of amazing movies, everybody is in it. And it's, well, it's a turd. Um, so keep those coming. What is the worst movie with the best cast? And it does not have to feature Keanu Reeves. I should point that out right now because we, as we've said, we love Keanu. Don't knock him. Next week, we got a double bill of Mike Lee. He's got a new movie out. It's called Peter Lou. In the film club, we're going to be doing his 1993 film, Naked. And we've also got Japanese anime, Mirai. Uh, which just leaves me to say thank you very much to Ella Kemp. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for coming. And thank you to Hannah Woodhead. Thank you very much. And I'd just like to say as well to all you fans of Little I Lies, the magazine, our next issue is out next week. So uh, keep your eyes on our website. Who's on the whatnot. cover? I can't tell you yet because I don't know if it's a com- oh. I don't know if it's common knowledge, but I'm sure next week one of our esteemed well, guests will be able to provide more details. Get in touch with us. Truth and movies at tcolondon.com is the email address. At Truth and Movies is where you'll find us on Twitter. Uh, this is the end of the Truth and Movies podcast for this week. We'll see you next time. This has been a seven digital production. Shh. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.